If you have your Bibles, please open it to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 to 11 is going to be the text for us this morning. Now before I start, I do want to thank the elders, and particularly Pastor Henry, for giving me this opportunity to preach for the last 10 weeks or so. Uh, it's been a joy to be able to dive into God's Word and be able to preach to you, really for my doctoral project. Um, but it is still, a, for me, it was a great time to, to be part of the worship service and be able to preach to you the things I've learned from my project. Uh, there is one more thing that you guys can do for me uh, later on today, maybe to, to either tonight or tomorrow, I'll send out the survey for, it's a survey that you guys took a few months ago um, when I started the project, the same questions, and the reason why I have to do the survey is, to, is really to see um, the congregation, how they retain the material that, that I taught throughout these 10 weeks or so. Uh, so please, uh, uh, if you guys remember your, your animal and your number, all that, just fill that out, it'll be helpful for me in terms of passing the class, but more importantly, at least it helps me uh, to see where I'm at in terms of my development as a preacher. So with that said, First Peter chapter 5, verses 6 to 11, we'll begin by reading God's word, and then we'll go into the text. First Peter chapter 5, verse 6, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirits. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. I think I made reference to this book a while back. Uh, it's one of my favorite books that I've read uh, in my life. It's uh, by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. Some of you might have read it as well. It's a story about this older demon uh, trying to shepherd his younger demon um, to be able to help him be a good demon, which sounds like an oxymoron. Uh, but this book is just basically... Uh, it captures that, this idea that, that we have this adversary against us, and they're always scheming against the people of God. And in particular, the section about the devil, uh, the, the older devil, will try to teach the younger devil on how, to, how, to we, how do we present ourselves to the church? How do we get the church to think wrongly about us? And then throughout that section, uh, the older demon instructed that you need to think in terms of either overexposure or underexposure. Either overexpose it so that people can become desensitized, that they're so used to seeing these things like demons that they don't take it seriously. Or you expose it in a way that people are so terrified that they don't fear the Lord, that they fear demons more than God himself. And again, the implication is that the demons know how to make us people think wrongly about him. Now, though this work, the screw tape letters, is fiction, there is a subtle truth to it. People generally think wrongly about him because we get our understanding of the devil from the world. And that, that confuses people in terms of their walk with God. Throughout this letter in First Peter, Peter's trying to instruct 
the believers on how they are supposed to conduct themselves as sojourners and aliens in the world, as people that don't belong here on earth. How are they supposed to live? Peter begins this letter by telling them that they have a charge. It's a charge to go and remember that they belong to the Lord, that there is this place that, we, that the Lord is preparing for us, this paradise that awaits us because of the promises of God. And in light of this promise, we should live in a way that is different from the world. That we are called to be holy because our Heavenly Father is holy. We're called to put aside all sins and different hypocrisies and slanders because we're called to desire God's Word and to live according to His Word. Throughout First Peter, he gives us these practical applications. What does it mean to live differently? Whether that is to our earthly masters or to our government, we're called to submit to them because submission shows the world what Christ is like. In the end of chapter 2, Peter gives us this example of Jesus Christ and how he suffered and yet he did not revile and fight back in any form but kept entrusting himself with God. In chapter 3, we began that section about marriage in the context of a believing spouse with an unbelieving spouse, and how the believing spouse is still called to submit to the Lord. And in doing and fulfilling their responsibility as, their, as, a, as a believing spouse, they could win their unbelieving spouse without a word. Then we went on to talk about the life of the church and how we need to be brotherly, sympathetic, harmonious, humble in spirit, kind-hearted towards one another. And then there's an natural application in serving each other. Well, there is the things that we say, it should be the utterances of God or the way that we serve through the power of the Lord. We're supposed to use our spiritual gifts for the building up of the body. And in doing so, the watching world will notice that we love each other. And this is what Jesus said, that the world will know that you belong to me in the way that you love each other. And last week, we learned about the shepherd, the pastor, the leader, the elders of the church, how they're supposed to watch over the flock of God. And in doing so, not just with their teaching, but with their life, they give an example of what it means to pursue Jesus Christ. In their pursuit of Christ, there will be humble servants. And then, now we get to this section at the very end, where Peter talks about the devil, the adversary, the things that we're going to wrestle against. Now, throughout this whole preaching series, I try to answer the question, why does SF need SFBC? And I try to answer it by basically saying, well, we were here by God's divine appointment to win people to Christ. But how does knowing the devil or of the works of the devil help us with that? It's because when we understand the works of the devil, we could resist it. We could resist its influence. We could resist its temptation so that, we can, so that the world can see us as people that are not of the devil, but we are of the Lord. In the way that we live our lives, we're supposed to be lights of the world as opposed to living for the prince of darkness. So for us this morning, if we want to represent Christ well, we need to know what our enemy is like. We need to know what our enemy is like. So our first point for us this morning is this. The enemy within. The enemy from within. Notice this is therefore. This is a connection back to what he said earlier. Peter said, You younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourself with humility 
toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is going back to the fact that we need to be humble. Uh, is a result of the natural outcome, outflow of being a humble person is that we're going to need God's grace. If you are not humble with your elders here on earth, you're not going to be humble before the Lord. This is arguing from the lesser to the greater. If you're not going to be humble before the elders that are before you, how are you going to be humble before the Lord? Notice it says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. This is not some option here that Peter is instructing them. God is not suggesting that we perhaps think it's a good idea for us to humble ourselves under God. Rather, humble here is this sense of lowliness. He's commanding us to do this. In this case, it makes sense because it's before God. Now, interestingly enough, throughout the entire book, we see the word humble and smooth. These are all active things, things that we need to actually pursue. Yet here, the word humble here is in the passive, which means you're being humbled by God. You're being humbled by God. God is the one doing the humbling with his mighty hand. God, <coughs> excuse me, God is the one that's humbling you through different circumstances. And what Peter's trying to say here is that don't resist what God is doing to you. Now, why is that? Why is he using this passive word here? It's because early on in chapter 4, he talks about the sufferings of, of being a faithful believer, that you are going to suffer for your faith. And in light of those sufferings, because of your faithfulness to the Lord, you're still going to be refined even more to be more like Christ. Although you are a believer and you look like Christ to a certain degree, you're not there yet. And the Lord can use persecution as a way to make you more like Christ, to represent him better because of suffering. And the tougher the situation, the more we are more like Christ. God is making you more like his son under his mighty hand. Christ is our example. Christ is also the center. Jesus was exalted at the right time, and God only decides when that perfect time is. Notice he said that he may exalt you at the proper time. This gives us the purpose. God's design for hard times is to make us truly like his son. It's the testing, it's the refiner's fire. God decides when a person can be exalted and when a person still needs to be humbled. And we, I know in our moments of suffering, wish that the proper time could just be immediate. When we're suffering, we wish that it could just happen right away. Yet we know that God is the only one in charge of that. We all have seasons of bliss. And we also all have seasons of blister. Humility causes us to trust the Lord no matter what goes on in the circumstance. No matter what's going on around you, we understand everything that happens, God is using it to mold us to make it more like Him. This is why in verse 7, He says, casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Humility understands that what it shows that we trust in the Lord. If we're humble before the Lord, we're saying essentially that we trust you, God. I don't know what's best for me, but you do. And I'm going to humbly submit to that. That's why I say we need to cast our burdens, our anxieties to the Lord. This word casting is, a, is this idea of hoisting up something, picking up something and putting it in, in a higher location. And we have this unique relationship with the Lord so we can cast our anxieties before him. Now, the world is a place that's filled with sorrows and pain. 
But it's doubly so for the believer because not only do we suffer just the regular pains of the world, the regular sufferings, just like how non-believers suffers, but it's doubly so because we as believers believe in Jesus Christ. So not only do we suffer like how everyone in the world suffers, but we suffer even more because of our faith in Christ. And that is a, a, a temptation for anxiety. And Peter's saying that the cure for that is to cast it to the Lord. We need to do something with our fears, but what is it? And that is we offer these anxieties up to the Lord through prayer. Why? Because when we don't give it to the Lord, we're essentially saying that we are in control, that we don't trust God, and that's a form of pride. We believe in our abilities to overcome this. We believe in our own talents and uh, things in our life. A prideful person is never dependent on the Lord for help. Casting our anxiety is an expression of humility. This is, again, the opposite is also true. If, you're, if you find yourself always not casting your anxiety before the Lord, not trusting in Him, that means you're a very proud person and you're self-reliant. Only believers have this genuine humility. We have this unlimited resource to go to the Lord. And we understand that non-believers can't pray to God the way that we do. Non-believers can't pray because scripture tells us that the prayers of non-believers are offense to him the only prayer that god accepts from a non-believer is the cry of repentance but for believers we should pray because we have access to him we have access to the lord he wants us to cast our anxieties before him we must throw our anxiety onto the lord notice Peter's not saying casting small things or, or big things, only small things and not big things, or only big things and not small things, or things of little significance or things of only with huge significance. Brother, it's all things in every category. Anything that causes us to be anxious, no matter how big or small it seems, we bring it before the Lord. We're confident that God cares for us, and that's why we offer our anxieties to Him. You'll trust in God more in his plan when you offer your anxieties to him. Again, anxiety is anything that can make you lose attention or lose focus or lose peace. It's something that you're worried about. Any fears about the future or the present or things you've done in the past, anything that makes you anxious. This passage is about all problems that make you anxious. Now, there are some things in life that you go through that are real pains and cause real anxiety. But there are also some things that you go through that are, let's just say, irrational. That they're actually not real. It's like the high schooler that is about to finish high school and he's going to graduate and going to apply to colleges. He sends in his application and he panics because he looks back, oh, what if I... What if I didn't do, what if because I don't get into college is that second grade spelling bee that I didn't spell that one word? What if it's because that one word I'm not going to get into this prestigious college that I want to? You think that's ridiculous. You're fearful over nothing. You're worried about nothing. Or the high school or the college student about to graduate college and he's thinking, I need to get this job, otherwise I won't be able to get, have a family. If I have a family and then this kid comes into the picture and I can't support him because then if he goes to his second grade spelling bee, he messes one word, then it, you, know, you, just go, you just dwell on things that are irrational. But whether it is real or unreal, whatever it may be, we offer it to the Lord. We give it to him. Why? Because anxiousness is a sin. 
when you worry about things, you may fall into further unrepentant sin. Whatever fear that you might have, you need to cast it to the Lord. There is a difference between actually sinning versus temptation. And there are going to be situations in life when, you, when it happens before you, you're going to feel something inside that makes you anxious. But there's a difference between that versus dwelling on it and be crippled by it. To be able to be so anxious that you can't function. This is what we're called to do, to give those things to the Lord. Do you pray about your anxiety or does your anxiety prey upon you? I'm not saying that you pray and do nothing about it. But the first thing that we should all do as believers whenever we're struggling with things in life is to go and pray. To ask the Lord, to give it to him and to let him know what we're struggling with. One of the things that you'll notice is that the ones that are most worried are the people who pray the least. People who are always anxious are those that don't pray. People who trust in the Lord and are giving up their problem. These are the people that have this assurance of the future because they know God is watching over them, that their life is in God's hands. Whether it be dating, whether it be parenting, whether it's with your marriage, whether work or money, whatever it may be, you can tell in your own life what you're most anxious about in whatever area if you're worried about those, areas, if worried about those things. Some people can have a great job, but they're worried about their life at home. That means that that's the area that you need to learn to trust the Lord in. You need to give that up to the Lord. Again, this isn't to say you're not going to be a good testimony. You're not going to try your best to win them to Christ. But any time you feel anxious, that's the Lord exposing to you areas that you do not trust him. This is why the person who is, um, who is most calm and confident, they're always in prayer because they're trusting the Lord with everything in their life. But the one that is most fearful, the one that's always worried and anxious, they are the ones that are not praying. It's not wrong to even ask other people to pray for you. I think that's a great thing that we have being part of a local body is that we, we share prayer requests. But you have to wonder, you have to ask yourself, do you, do you find yourself asking other people to pray for you more than you pray for it about, pray for the thing, whatever situation, maybe yourself? Because it's easy for us to want to outsource our prayers to other people. We can tell other people to pray for the salvation of loved ones, but we find ourselves not praying for them. We can pray we can ask other people to pray for the situation or conflict to be resolved, but we're not praying about it in our own personal time. Okay, this isn't to say that you can't ask other people to pray with you or come alongside you in prayer, but you need to go to God personally with the things that you're struggling with because God is always able to help. I'm not saying that your problems aren't real or they're not big, but we have a real God who is bigger than all of your problems. This shows us that God cares for us. That's why Peter writes at the end of verse 7, because he cares for you. God wants to help you. He wants to pay attention to you. He cares about all of us. You know, whenever you watch the news, I know some of you guys don't even know what news is anymore, but sometimes when we watch local news, they'll say, the most trusted network in the Bay Area or the most trusted news in San Francisco. Why do they do that? Why do they say the most trusted? It's because the idea is that you can go back to them, that they're reliable. But we know that the news and the things in the world, they may say those things, but they may never live up to it. But God is to be trusted because God cares for you. God truly cares for you. And you and I can go to the Lord and the Lord will listen. 
God knows everything that's going on in our hearts and our minds. He wants us to go to Him. Even when there are moments when we don't, know, don't have the right words to say, the Lord helps us with it. Romans chapter 8, verses 26. Paul, when it comes to prayer, says this, In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Holy Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We see in the way that we pray, there's a Trinitarian aspect to it. We pray to the Father because what the Son has done on the cross for us and the Holy Spirit enables us to go and pray even if we don't have the right word to say. And all of this shows that our God cares for us. Not because we're special or that you know, we're unique because of who we are, but because of who God is. It is in his nature to care and love us. It is all because of his grace. I know Christmas is coming up, but I remember, you could try this, this in a few months during Christmas time, but I remember last year when I went to the mall with my family, I was looking at Santa, and he was having these little kids on his lap, and you just stare at his dead, beady eyes. Like He has no love for the kids that, he, that's, that he's talking to. He doesn't really care. He'll say, ho, 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 kids, what do you like for Christmas? As if he really cares. And then the kids will just tell him, I want this, I want this. And he would just say it loudly, just really for the parents to hear. But Santa doesn't really care. That's just his job. He just pays, he gets paid to sit there for several hours and pretend that he cares. But our God truly does care about our wants and needs. He wants us to go to him. and He listens to us. Does knowing that God cares for you motivate you to pray to him more? And I wonder if for some of you, the reason why you don't pray is because you think that God doesn't care for you. You think, well, God doesn't, it's not going to listen to me. God doesn't care, so why should I pray? Faithlessness and prayerlessness are connected. Those that pray trust God. Those who are anxious don't pray. The greater the faith, the more vibrant your prayer life will be. This is how we know that our enemies first from within. It's a terrible testimony when people look at our lives and we're just as anxious as they are. When the world is talking about how the economy is bad and how we're going through these potential world wars and all the things that's going on around them, they're anxious, they don't know what's going to happen, and they see you just as paralyzed as they are, but they know that you're a Christian. That is a terrible testimony. We fail to be sojourners and aliens of this world when we react to the people of this world. When we act just like them, when we go to the same type of solutions that they go to, when we have the same distrust for the Lord like the world, we can't win them to Christ. God knows that the economy is not going well. God knows that there's a war. God knows that the world is dangerous. God knows that your health is declining. God knows about their financial struggles. God knows all the difficulties in life. God knows and he cares for you. Ask for wisdom, strength, and grace during those moments when you feel anxious. You should make a rule in your own life that before you go and tell other people about your problems, before you vent to everyone else, you should go and pray to the Lord yourself. People will know if you trust God, if you are anxious all the time. If you are anxious, you're telling the world that the God that you claim to worship is not reliable. And you can't win the watching world if you're anxious all the time. Fight this fight inside. Overcome anxiousness by casting the burdens before the Lord. Not only is it any from within, 
but we also have an enemy from without. The enemy from without. Verses 8. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. This is the first warning that Peter gives in this book about the devil. And he's telling us to be sober-minded, to be I mean, clear-minded, to think clearly, to be level-headed, to think biblically about an issue. This is clearly about what is going on around them. Think biblically with God's word. Satan is always scheming against humanity, and you have to be discerning to know when he's actually doing it. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul writes, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his schemes. When you know that the devil is trying to trick you, you're aware of it because you're clear-headed, because you're sober-minded. An alert believer is a believer that's able to look at every circumstances with a biblical view. We're not moved by our emotions. We're not moved by circumstance. We're sober-minded. Peter's telling people to wake up, to be alert. Notice how he describes the devil. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Don't take lightly of the devil, but we should always get our doctrine from the word of God. We need to dismiss the world's understanding of who the devil is, and the world describes the devil as someone that's just so relatable and charming. And, you know, yeah, he might have this, like, this bad issue, but he's kind of a good guy if you get to know him a little bit more. That's exactly how the devil tried to trick you into thinking that you don't need to go to the Lord or to Scripture to know who he is. He's described as an adversary. This is like someone that is an accuser. He, he hates us. This is a lawyer term to accuse us before the Lord. He tries to have all of these evidence before God and why we should not be able to go to heaven. Yet Jesus, in the book of Hebrews, describes as our advocates. He's someone that would say, yes, he has committed all of these sins, but I paid for each and every single one of those sins. But who is Satan? Well, the Bible describes Satan as not some sort of nebulous force. It's not some bad aura. It's a created angelic being that fell because of pride, which is what God is opposed. God is opposed to the proud. And the very first sin, really, in all of reality is the sin that the devil committed against the Lord. In his own pride, he thought that he could be equal or better than the Lord. Satan is not, also he's not some sort of owner of hell. He's, it's not like if you go into hell, Satan's there like, welcome to my domain. That's not what it is. Hell is a prison for Satan and all the fallen demons and those who rejected Jesus Christ. Hell is where Satan will be punished for all of eternity. It's not a place that he will rule. Satan is not omniscient, meaning he doesn't know all things. Satan is not omnipotent because God is only omnipotent. And Satan is also not omnipresent. Now, I know that it's possible that in this room right now there are demons. I'm not talking about your little ones. I'm talking about actual demons that we don't see. At the same time, I'm aware that there also could be angels in the room. Again, not talking about your children. That in, that in this in, in, the, in the invisible space that we don't see, that it's possible that there's angels and demons among us. And I'm not certain, it's possible. But what I am absolutely certain of is that God is with us. No matter where we go, no matter where we are, no matter how hard the circumstances may be, God is with us. Satan can only be at one place at a time. He can probably travel very quickly, but he can only be at one place at a time. Satan also cannot read your mind. 
He knows how to influence your mind, but he can't actually go into the mind of the believer. He can corrupt the things of the world and maybe non-believers to make them think of things that are not biblical. But demons cannot actually impact and influence the way the believers, uh, they can't impact the mind of the believer because they're filled with the Spirit. Demons have thousands and thousands of years of experience, so they know how to manipulate circumstances and situations to get you to fall into sin. Satan is not this passive onlooker. He's actively looking for people to devour. This is your adversary. Again, he targets believers. So he prowls around like a roaring lion. He's seeking and looking for prey. That's what Satan and, and lions have in common. They, they don't jump towards the herd of animals. They always look for the ones that stray, always the ones that maybe don't think about going to church because it's not for them, but still proclaim to be a Christian. They look for the ones that are wounded and maybe distant because the church are filled with hypocrites. I don't want to go to church anymore. Those are the people that Satan goes after. Those are the people that the demons go after because they're looking for the prey, the individual one that's by themselves. The enemy picks out the ones that are far off from the rest because they know that there is strength in numbers. Find the ones that are easy and they'll go after them. It says that the devil prowls around like a lion that's same word that's used in Job chapter 1 verse 7, where Satan is just going all around the world and God summons the devil, what were you doing? And he said, I'm just roaming around. That's this idea that he's just looking for people to devour. And then he asks, well, on your journey is all around the world, did you find this man Job? What do you know about him? So, but what does it mean for Satan to devour believers? Does the devil actually manifest itself into a physical lion and eat us? No, that doesn't happen. Uh, what it means is that it's, the devil tries to kill our faith. The greatest and smartest strategy of the devil is to make individuals ineffective for the kingdom, to get them to, get them to doubt God's word. That's ex- exactly how Eve fell into sin. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, Satan asked, Did God really say... And you understand that every movement against God has always been this question, did God really say? Can God really do what he claims that he'll do? And one way is to find isolated Christians who are struggling with their faith so he can devour them, so they eventually deny the faith altogether. But if he is such a threat, what does it look like? What does it look like? Well, the devil has many fronts, and we'll just go through a few of them. One of the fronts that he have that he uses is that he sets up temptation for us. He sets up temptation. Satan can't make you sin, but he can definitely put traps in your life for you to fall into sin. He and it is because of that you can't say, "Well, the devil made me do it." This is why in Matthew chapter six, verse thirteen, Jesus, when he's teaching them how to pray toward the end, he says. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And he tries to set up things around us so that we can fall into sin. Eve was responsible for what she did, even though it was tempt- even though she was tempted by the devil, and the same for us. We may be in circumstances that is set up by the devil to tempt us, but it is still our responsibility when we fall into it. Sin can dangle temptation in front of you, but it is your responsibility to flee from it. 
But if you fail, it is because of your own doing. Satan knows your weakness, but do you? You know the way that, the, that Satan uses one another front, that Satan tries to get people to deny the faith or to devour them, is through disease and trauma to get people to not trust God. It's through disease and trauma. I mentioned Job, and that's exactly what happened to Job. Satan said, look, if you just afflict him, if you took away all his health and all his wealth, he will deny you. And Jesus, or God gave him permission, you can do all of that. Take all of those things away, and he will not deny me. And in your life, God can do the same thing as well. If, if it's part of God's divine plan that you go through some sort of disease that doesn't make sense, or, or you lose all your wealth, whatever it may be, if, if God allows the devil to do that for, to you, that is a way to test your faith. Again, it's not that God doesn't know what's going on, but he wants you to know what's going on. Do you have that genuine love that you proclaim when things are good in your life? It's for you to see whether or not you truly trust the Lord. So sometimes he'll use diseases and trauma to get people to deny the faith. Another way he does it is to attack the church as a whole. Now that's a it's a very broad category, but in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus said, I will build my church, and not even the gates of Hades can overthrow or consume the church. That is, uh, this means that, it is, that the devil will try. The devil will try to find ways to make the church ineffective. And it's possible that he can make certain churches and certain cities ineffective, but he will not win in terms of getting every single believer to fall or every church to fall. He may influence certain leaders to lead their church astray, but he can't control and do that to every single church in all time because God is one who builds his church. Next is creating and controlling worldly systems to confuse the church. Uh, can, creating and confusing uh, ideas to, control, to confuse the church. I mean, this is like any ism that you can think of whether it be postmodernism or modernism or racism, whatever ism it may be, or any worldly philosophies or even false religions, from the Joseph Smith to the Charles Russell, the, which is Mormonism or Jehovah Witnesses, whatever it may be, all of these are demonically inspired. Second Corinthians 10, verses 4 to 6, Paul writes, For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we're ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Satan is trying to win and try to trick you by different worldly ideas. The next one here. Uh, I, think, I think some of you guys are probably having a question. What about demonic possessions? I think this, there is a category for that. The, the next, another way that devil attacks is possess unbelievers to do the deeds of the devil. I do think that believers do not, or will not be influenced, or, or they could be influenced, but they can't be possessed by the devil. If you look at the life of Jesus, there's Judas. Judas was with Jesus, and it says that when before Jesus, Judas left, the twelve and leaving Jesus behind is that the devil entered into him. He's someone that was truly an unbeliever. And you may be wondering, what about people in churches that are demonically possessed? 
Well, it's just a real realization for you that that person is truly was not a believer to begin with because unbelievers can be possessed by the devil in terms of doing his bidding, whether it's coming up with worldly ideas or anything that would cause people to, uh, to go against God's word. These are all things that are pleasing to the devil that, that are offensive to the Lord. I have more, but I'll just go with one more here. One way that the devil tries to get people to, to, to devour people is a fear of death. The fear of death. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to, ever, to, subject to slavery all their lives. This means that sometimes when you are most vulnerable, when, you're about, when you feel like you're about to die, that's the moment where the devil finds his opportunity. But when you're not afraid of death, now I understand the process of dying can be difficult. But for the believer, we don't fear death because of the hope that we have in Christ. And, we, and that's how the devil tries to thwart us and devour us. But with the devil have all of these different fronts, and these are only the ones I've only come up with, how do we respond? Go back to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 9. It says, But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. It says resist him, not fight him. This is not taking some spell book or, or some magic to resist. It's not a call for exorcism or binding of Satan. I remember during the pandemic, uh, when it was at the height of it, there was this one uh, pros- uh, charismatic preacher. He said, put your hand on the screen. But I want you to pray with me, pray with me that this, the, this demon known as COVID will, be, uh, will bind him so that COVID could be done away with. And like a few days later, he got COVID. And basically everyone that claims to be binding Satan, that, that, that's not actually true. In fact, this idea of binding Satan comes up in Revelation about how the angel is going to bind Satan and so it's not really our job. Also, it was weird when charismatics do it because I'm going to bind you. It's like, okay, you bind for how long? How long is this going to last? Because you have to rebind them again in the next episode. So it's not that it's our responsibility to bind Satan, but it is our responsibility to resist him. We're called to resist him, and he will flee from us. The Bible never tells us to bind him or cause exorcism, but to resist him. But how do we resist? Notice Peter says, you resist in terms by firm in your faith. How do we deal with the devil's attack? You have, to greater, you have to have a greater faith in the Lord. His job is to get you to stop trusting the Lord. Your responsibility is to continue to grow in your trust in the Lord. If you are a believer, your growth in the faith will cause you to resist the devil. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 to 17, this is the armor of God. And you'll notice whether it's talking about the, the sword of salvation or the helmet of salvation, the sword of the word. These are all different synonyms to describe what it's like to be a Christian. And it's mainly that our primary weapons are things that are spiritual. It's spiritual warfare. And we need to have truth in order to do that. How do we combat against Satan? We combat him with truth. Think about what everything that the, the devil tries to do. Is trying to get you to deny truth. And it is our job to safeguard our own hearts by resisting the devil by knowing truth. You need to know the truth, the word about God, and not just of 
scripture. You to use the sword, not just, not, not just own it. You resist by knowing God's word. It says to be firm in your faith. This is to be immovable, to be rigid. You can't give up. What, what does anxiousness and Satan both have in common is that they both seek to try to get you to not trust God. Anxiousness is a sign of distrust in the Lord, and Satan tries to do whatever he can from the outside for you to do the same. Resisting anxiousness in Satan requires the same weapon, and that is the word of God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, John writes, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he, meaning Jesus, who is in you than, than he who is in the world. God dwells in you because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And the thing that you, do, that you have against the schemes of the devil or anxiousness is the word of God. Satan wants you to not feel true, to, to make you not trust in God's word. Notice that even though he, the devil's trying to scheme against you, it's not just you alone. Because at the end of verse 9, it says, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. We are not alone. We have other believers. We are a church body here. We have other believers that we can rely on to help build us up. The church is best when we are in each other's lives. This type of suffering is not unique to us. Second Corinthians tells us that we all go, there's nothing that we're going through that the Lord doesn't allow for us to comfort one another. That means there's other people that have, under, that have gone through the same sufferings that you've gone through, and you could comfort them with the comfort that God has given you. We need to strengthen one another in the faith and help each other resist the evil one by reminding each other of truth. That's why we're with each other. We can be an effective front for the gospel when we are together encouraging each other, reminding each other of the truth of, and the promises of God so that we can represent him well in this world. Not only are there enemies from within, which is anxiousness, or enemies from without, which is the devil, but our last point is the reality of enemies that the enemies end, verses 10 to 11. Notice that after you have suffered for a little while, this is a doxology, Jesus Christ has called you to restore you after suffering, that you may be going through all of these things, but one day it will end. Believers are saved and safe in the hands of God. God will strengthen us. He will confirm us. He will perfect us one day. Peter's reminding us that God is molding us through different trials, and even though we're going through a lot of pain, it is not forever, that there is a definitive end to this. The work of the enemies of God will do all that he can to make us suffer, but it will only last a little while. It will not last forever. Notice it says the God of all grace, the same God that gives you the grace for salvation, is the same God that's going to give you the grace to overcome sin in this life, is the same God that's going to give you grace for assurance, it's the same God that's going to give you grace when you're glorified. He is the good God, he cares for us, and he will see through it that we'll make it to the end. That's why Peter writes, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. God was one who placed this life, new life that we have, and he's going to make sure that we'll make it to the very end. Life is short, but glory is eternal. 
This is unmeasured satisfaction. We get to enjoy all of God in Christ for all of eternity. If God called you in the beginning, he will see to it that you will be with him one day. He says he, will, he himself will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. These are all the future glories that we have. God is working in our life. It says that it is perfect. This is it means that we'll be complete and lacking in nothing, that we will be perfect. We'll, he'll confirm our faith. It means he, he will keep us from wobbling back and forth. He'll strengthen us. It means exactly that. He'll give us the ability to press on, and he'll establish you. This is, means that he will give us the ground for us to stand on. It's like the old hymn, right? Or even, even what Jesus said, that we stand on the solid ground that is Christ. God's goal is to establish you. At the very end, he said, to him be dominion forever and ever, Peter is praising God at the end. He breaks into this doxology. And he's saying God is powerful and can control everything in your life, including the anxiousness and the devil, and know that those temptations to fall into both categories will one day end. That's why at the end he said, forever and ever, amen. He's using situation to describe what we have in God forever. Our life is short, and this journey, although it feels long, will find an end one day. As believers, that should make us hopeful. We know as sojourners, as faithful sojourners, we must resist anxiousness from within and resist the devil from without. And, and just remembering the fact that one day all the pain and suffering will be done away with. I'd like to close with this. This is a little, pair, little, little mini essay from a man named Paul Harvey. Paul Harvey wrote this called, If I Was the Devil, If I Were the Devil. It was written in 1965, which is around the same time when SFBC started his church. Paul Harvey was an ABC radio broadcaster, some of you probably have listened to him. He had this segment called News and Comments. And what is unique about this is people would ask him certain things, and he would try to give his own um, editorial or his own opinion about it. But someone asked him this question, what would you do if you were the devil? And this is what he wrote. This remember 1965. He wrote, If I were the devil, if I were the prince of darkness, I'd want to engulf the whole world in darkness. And I'd have a third of his real estate and four-fifth of his population. But I wouldn't be happy until I'd seize the ripest apple on the tree. You. So I'd set about however necessary to take over the United States. I'd subvert the churches first. I'd begin with a campaign of whispers. With the wisdom of a serpent, I would whisper to you as I whispered to Eve, do as you please. To the young, I would whisper that the Bible is a myth. I would convince them that man created God instead of the other way around. I would confide that what's good is bad and what's good is square or bad. And the old... I would teach to pray after me, our Father, which art in Washington. Then I'd get organized. I'd educate authors in how to make lucid literary exciting so that anything else would appear dull and uninteresting. I'd throw in TV with dirtier movies and vice versa. I'd peddle narcotics to whom I could. I'd sell alcohol to ladies and gentlemen of distinction. I'll tranquilize the rest with pills. If I were the devil, 
I'd soon have families at war with themselves, churches at war with themselves, and nations at war with themselves until each in its turn was consumed. And with promises of higher ratings, I'd have mesmerizing media fanning the flames. If I were the devil, I would encourage schools to refine young intellects but neglect to discipline emotion. Just let those run wild until before you knew it, you'd have to drug, you have do- drug-sniffing dogs and metal detectors at every school door. Yeah, 1965. Within a decade, I had prisons overflowing. I have judges promoting pornography. Soon I could evict God from the courthouse, then from the schoolhouse, and then from the houses of Congress. And in his own churches, I would substitute psychology for religion, and deify science. I would lure priests and pastors into misusing boys and girls and church money. If I were the devil, I'd make the symbols of Easter an egg and a symbol of Christmas a bottle. If I were the devil, I'd take from those who have and give to those who want until I had killed the incentive of the ambition. And what do you bet I could get whole states to promote gambling as a way to get rich? I would caution against extreme and hard work in patriotism, in moral conduct. I would convince the young that marriage is old-fashioned and swinging is more fun, that what you see on TV is the way to be. And thus I could undress you in public, and I could lure you into bed with diseases for which there is no cure. In other words, if I were the devil, I'd just keep right on doing what he's doing. Paul Harvey, good day. As believers, we know that the devil is against us. But as Christians, as soldiers and aliens of this world, we represent Christ. We are not of this world. The world may be passing away and being uh, drawn to the things of the devil, but we our believers trying to win those people to Christ. That is why we are here. We are here as representatives and as ambassadors of Jesus Christ to call people to come to saving faith, that they cannot find salvation anywhere on this earth except from Jesus Christ alone. May that be our charge, and may that be our mission here, and to really know why we are here in San Francisco. Let's close our time in prayer. Father God, thank you for your word. Lord, we're grateful for, to be able to be representatives of you here. May you give us courage and boldness to represent you well, to tell people about Jesus Christ, to not be anxious of the things that trouble us from within and to resist the devil from without with the word of truth. Lord, we know that the trials in this life will one day pass away. And I hope that for all of us that we have this eternal mindset, knowing that this life is indeed short, and that we want to use every moment that we can to represent you and to tell people of you. This is why we're here, Lord. This is why you placed us here, to be able to be soul winners and to be fisher of men so that we can tell others, hopefully snatch the few out of the fire. Thank you for this opportunity. In your son's name I pray. Amen.